Well, welcome to Crossroads. You can go ahead and be seated. Man, I'm so glad that you are here today. I know that Angie mentioned this earlier, but how many of you made it to the Taylor Swift concert? Anybody here? Any Swifties? 300,000 people and not one of you went. Yeah. No, I get it. When you got the Amandas, who needs Taylor, right? I mean, they're, they're pretty awesome. I would have got, gladly gone to a Taylor Swift concert, but yesterday I was actually at a wedding. Uh, Caroline Guest, who is now Caroline Grubb, she is the one who does all of our communication here at Crossroads Church. She got married to Keegan yesterday, and so we were out partying late last night. So if what I say today doesn't make any sense, just blame it on that, all right? So for some of you, I'm sure you're imagining, like, who is this guy who's talking about nothing right now? Um, I am the senior pastor uh, here at Crossroads Church. My name is Matt Manning, and I am uh, glad that you're here today. We are uh, actually in the final stretch of a series that we're calling The Body, where we're looking at the meaning and the significance of, uh, of the church. Uh, a few years ago, uh, part of my kind of weekly rhythm of Sabbath that I, that I do every Friday. Uh, when my kids were younger, particularly my boys when they were in elementary school, uh, part of that rhythm was for me to go and to eat lunch with them. Every Friday, I would wake up in the morning and I would go and I would ask them, what is it that you want to eat today? And typically it was like McDonald's, you know, sometimes it was like the dreaded Taco Bell. Uh, rarely it was Chick-fil-A, which I still consider to this day a complete parenting fail. But anyways, they would give me, you know, their order of what they wanted and I would go pick it up and then I'd join them for lunch and I'd sit with their friends and we'd catch up on what, everything that happened during the day. I'd hear the stories uh, from the past week. Now, when I went to their schools, I usually would get there a few minutes before the cafeteria is open, when the kids were still playing out on the playground. And I'd walk towards kind of the cafeteria and in the hallway of the cafeteria are this, in their school are these huge, huge windows where you can see the entire playground. And so I would sit down in those chairs and I would look out over the playground and I would just watch the kids play. And you know, most of the time it was like a happy moment for me, like to see the joy of kids' faces as they played four square or tag or you know, you know, would be swinging on the swing sets. But after going there like year after year, week after week, I started to notice something. I'd noticed that there were certain kids that, that didn't just you know, fit in. I'd see kids that, you know, weren't accepted, that, you know, they would be off by themselves, you know, they're not, none other kids were kind of around them. And in those moments, I'd find, you know, my heart just feeling a little bit sad for them. And I began to think, like, what would it be like day after day, week after week, year after year, knowing that you, you didn't fit, that you didn't belong, that you weren't accepted? And I'd find myself in those most you know, kind of in my selfish moments, praying to God, God, please don't let that be my kid. And then I started to wonder, I wonder if that's how God feels too. See, last week when we gathered together, we spent a lot of time and a lot of focus really around this idea that every single one of us here, every single one of us in the world is fearfully and wonderfully made. That each and every one of us was created with purpose and on purpose, and because of that, we have hope, and, and the possibilities before us, the potential before us is, is so great. But somehow in this world, us humans have created environments where, where some people don't fit, where some people don't belong, where some people aren't accepted. That we've created, you know, a world where certain groups are, are constantly at one another's throats, where they hate each other, where, where we even kill one another. And sometimes I wonder, what must it look like to see this world from God's perspective? To see what humanity has done to the world in which he 
created. And for some of you, you know exactly what that feels like, don't you? You would say, Matt, I was that kid. I've never felt like I belonged. I never felt accepted. I never felt like I fit, not only as a kid, but as an adult, I, I still feel that way. I struggle with that today. And maybe you would, maybe you would look out and you would say, like, like, that's the way that it's just always been for me. But what if I told you today that it didn't have to be that way? What if I was to tell you today that there's a place where you could absolutely know that you were always loved, that you were always accepted, that you always belonged, you were always celebrated? What if that place defined your reality, defined your future, but not just your, you know, your future, but that you could actually get a taste of that today? That's what I want to explore with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. It's where we're going to look at today. And as you open your Bibles there, I want to take a moment really to set the context because where we're going to be starting really in verse 11 builds off everything that Paul's said so far in the letter that he's writing to the Ephesians. In chapter 1, Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he tells them that before the foundations of the earth, for reasons that you and I will probably never understand, that God chose you, that God chose me, that you were chose to be holy, that is to be set apart, to be blameless without blemish, so that God could pour out every spiritual blessing that he has to offer you that you are so loved that he has made you an adopted child of his, that, that you are the heirs to the family fortune, that you bring great pleasure and delight to him as he redeems you, as he saves you, as he frees you from the slavery of sin, and he is so committed to this love that he has for you that he's actually placed the, his spirit, God's spirit is actually indwelling in you, empowering you to live the life to the fullest so that you can actually be the manifestation of Jesus in this world. I mean, the realities of chapter one, if we sit back and we just look at them, those realities are so profound, so huge, the way that they impact our lives. He gets to chapter two, and he tells us that for those of us who are, who are followers of Jesus, that all of this is true of us, because by grace, through faith, that we've been saved. That this isn't anything that we did, you know, so that no one can boast. But this is, this is truly just a gift from God. And then he wraps up that entire section with one of the most beautiful truths that we find in all of the scriptures when he says that you are God's workmanship. That is, you are God's masterpiece. And the idea behind it there is that as you look out into the creation and you see everything that's been created in this world, that as you experience all that this world has to offer and all that God has made in this world, know, Paul says, that you are God's favorite. That you are his favorite. Out of all of that, he writes to us in verse 11 of chapter 2 these words. He says, therefore, remember. Now, honestly speaking, when we come over the word remember, for most of us, it's probably a word that we just read over. We don't think a lot about the word remember here. But it's worth noting in this passage that when it comes to these first three chapters in the book of Ephesians that are all really about the truth, these realities that are, that are out there, that are true of God, of us, that in the first three chapters, there's only one command, there's only one imperative in the first three chapters, and it is the command to remember. Paul says that I'm commanding you, that I'm, I'm pleading with you, remember. Paul says that as a believer, this is who you are. This is who you are. 
that in your guts of guts, do you believe this to be true? Because here's what Paul knows, here's what we know, that ultimately what I believe determines the way that I live my life, isn't it? That what I believe is true about God, what I believe about, true is about myself, what I tr- believe is true about this world ultimately determines the way that I live in this life. And so Paul looks out at us and he says, I want you to remember. We need to remember. He says, remember therefore that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Have you ever had your moment in life where you're reading the scripture, and if you're anything like me, where you read a verse like this and you go, I have no idea what this means. (laughs) Anybody ever been there? Well, if you're there today, hold on with me. Let me encourage you. I'm gonna try to help you as we walk through these verses. We look at these and we go, man, these are so confusing. This so, like, like, Paul, why couldn't you just make this more simple, right? Well, let me help you understand what's going on here. What Paul is writing to, or who Paul is writing to in this letter, is largely Greeks. They're Greeks living in Ephesus. Now, when it comes to Greeks, uh, they were also called Gentiles. And Gentile was anybody who was not a Jew. So if you were a Jewish person, you were referred to as a Jew or a Hebrew. But if you were anything else, you were a Gentile. Now, because of the Old Testament and the covenants in the Old Testament, and if you're unsure of like what a covenant is, just think of it as like a promise with a pinky swear, right? So we have this covenant in the Old Testament, and as part of the covenant, the men of Jewish lineage, the Hebrew men, would have their foreskin cut off as a mark of belonging to God. They were called the circumcised. Now, anybody who was not a Jew, not a Hebrew, they were oftentimes referred to as the uncircumcised. Now, oftentimes when Jewish people called Gentiles the uncircumcised, they were doing so as a derogatory term. Like, they weren't, you know, they were, they were saying it as a taunt. This was a put-down, which is totally crazy. Because the only reason that the Jewish people were the people of God is because by God's grace, they were chosen to be so, right? Like, like there's no superiority in that at all. And so what he's saying is that you have these self-righteous Hebrew hypocrites who have completely forgotten what it means to be circumcised, and they see it no more, like, like it's nothing more to them than this religious activity that's done by the hands of humans. Like they've forgotten what all of this stands by. And so for them, they're walking around, the circumcision, those are Hebrews, those are Jews, are walking around and they're putting people in the category of uncircumcised as if to say that somehow these people are lower than us, that they're walking around, they're looking down on the rest of the world. To maybe put it in our modern day perspective, this would be the religious moralist, right? The self-righteous person who thinks for whatever reason they're cut above and they're looking down on the rest of the world as being something less or, or, or something than other. So the rest of the world is, you know, is just out there in this category, but, but I'm, but I'm self-righteous, that I'm, that I'm moral. Paul says, you need to remember, this is who you were. This is the category that you were in, that you were the uncircumcised, that this is how, this is how you were perceived. He goes on in verse 12. He says, also remember that you were at the time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in this world. You have no hope in this world. What Paul is saying is remember at one time in your life that you were on the outside looking in, that you had no basis for hope. Basically what Paul's argument here is, 
is that for the Jewish people, for the Hebrew people, at their core, they understood that in their best days, and even more so in their worst days, that no matter how bad it got, there was always hope because God made a promise. That God made a promise that one day he would send a Messiah, a Savior, a Redeemer, a Rescuer to deliver them. No matter how bad it got, there was always this promise that a hero would come to deliver them. Even in the darkest days, there was a thread of hope. But that wasn't so for the Gentiles. For the Gentiles and the Greeks, those outside the Hebrew people, they had no claim to such a promise. They lived with no concept of, of hope. There was no deliverer for them. There was no Messiah. There was no, there was no Savior. The best that they could expect in this world is that somehow that they would live moral lives, good religious lives, and then maybe, just maybe, the gods wouldn't stop on them. Like, like that's the best they had. In this time period, the, the Romans are the ones who are, are kind of leading the known world. And life under Roman rule was harsh. It was, it was difficult. There wasn't a lot to, to hang your hat on. There was a lot of despair. That the reality was, was that there was really nothing that people could claim that gave them any reason to live. In fact, one historian wrote and, and calls first century Rome really the age of suicide. Because so many people during this time period saw the world, saw that there was nothing to live for, and ultimately took their own lives. Paul's saying, remember, this is who you were. That you were on the outside looking in. You had no promises to claim. You had no savior to put your hope in. You had no future. There was virtually nothing to live for in this world at all. And honestly speaking, this is a way, the way that a lot of people live their lives in our world, isn't it? Walking around, looking at the world through eyes of despair, wondering what it looks like to live for tomorrow, wondering if there's even any reason to live for tomorrow. There's this sense of hopelessness, this sense that there is no answers, there's no hope, there's no tomorrow, there's nothing to live for. Paul says, remember before Jesus... This is who you were, verse 13. But now, verse 13, Nick, but now, in Christ Jesus, code, everything has changed. You who once were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. We get into verse 14, and, and Paul says, for he himself, that being Jesus, is our peace. That he is our, that he is our, he's our peace here. Now, the word peace that Paul uses in Ephesians is not just like in the Greek, the absence of conflict. That's the way that we think of peace. It's the absence of conflict. The Greek word for peace means so much more than that. In fact, it's closely associated with the Hebrew word shalom, which means this mutual flourishing, this sense in which we can create an environment where all, where all of us flourish together. And so what Paul is writing here is he's saying because of the blood of Jesus, that is because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, ultimately dying for our sins, bringing us near... Now, there's this possibility that an environment can be created where every single one of us can thrive, where every single one of us can bloom, where every single one of us can flourish together, where we can experience humanity in its fullest, where we can experience peace. He goes on, in verse 14, for he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. Now, to really understand what Paul's talking about here really hinges on this idea of the wall in this imagery. When he refers to the wall, he's, he's reaching into imagery of the Old Testament, or not the Old Testament, the, the uh, temple in Jerusalem, which most of all the world knew about. The known world knew about the temple in Jerusalem. It was familiar to all of them, so he's using this imagery to help Gentiles understand what's, what he's trying to say. Now, for us, we're a bit removed from the temple, so let me just take a moment to explain so that you see the imagery as well. When it came to the temple, the temple area, in the middle was this building, and in the building was what we call the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is where God's Spirit dwelt. For a thousand years in history, God's Spirit dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Now, as you came out of the building, there was these courtyards, and these were the courtyards of the Jews. It was the courts of the Jews. The closer courts were for men, a little bit further out were for the women, but these were the courts where the Jews would come to worship, to bring their sacrifices, to bring their praise, and it was right next to the building where the Holy of Holies was. Now, beyond the courtyard of the Jews were these walls, these very tall walls, and they surrounded the entire courtyard for the Jews, and outside those walls were the courts of the Gentiles. And here's where the Gentiles came to bring their worship, to bring their praise to God. If you had some sense that this God is, is the one true God as a Gentile, then this is where you could come and this is where you would worship. But you could not go past the wall into the courts of the Jews. In fact, if you tried to cross the wall into the courtyard of the Jews as a Gentile, the penalty was death. And the Jews weren't messing around. Like, this was not an idle threat. In fact, when we read in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, the one who's writing this church in Ephesus, he brings a Gentile, it's actually an Ephesian, into the temple area, and he's accused of bringing this Gentile into the Jewish courts. And the people, like, start freaking out. The priests are freaking out, and they're like, we got to take care of this. And so they go, and they get the guy, they drag him, they're about to beat him to death, and they would have beat him to death if not for a couple of Roman soldiers who walk by and stop it all. Like, like when it came to the Jewish people and the way that the temple was set up and where the Gentiles were allowed to be, they were serious. There was a wall, and you were not allowed beyond that. So imagine, as a Gentile, you have some sense that the, that the only real God that could provide any kind of hope, that could provide any kind of peace in your life, lived over there and you weren't allowed to get any closer than right here. That no matter how faithful you were, no matter how devoted you were, day after day, week after week, year after year, as you came to worship, there was this constant reminder in your life that you do not fit, that you do not belong, that you are not accepted. And there's nothing that you could do to change that. Paul says in these verses, when it comes to Jesus, that is all gone. There is now one man. That man is not gender specific. What he's speaking about here is that there's now this one new humankind. There's this new humankind, and whatever separates people, whether it's Jew or Gentile, whether it's rich or poor, whether it's black or white or brown, whether it's Democrat or Republican, Paul says there is now this new, greater reality that's deeper, more rich, more powerful than whatever divides us. And from now on, in God's eyes, 
For those who have put their faith in Jesus, there is now one kind, one kind of humankind, one kind of person in Jesus, and because of that, every single person in Jesus is equally loved, equally righteous, equally accepted, equally hope-filled, that we are equal in Jesus, not because of our performance, not because of our story, but because it's all Jesus all the time. And so now, in this new humanity that's rooted in God's grace, Jesus is building this environment where we can actually experience peace, where we can actually experience thriving in our lives. He goes on in verse 16, he says, in all of this, and might be reconciled us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to, to you who were far off. That is, think Gentiles, that, that Jesus came to preach to those who were far off, that's us as Gentiles, but also peace to those who were near, that's, that's the Jews, that Jesus came for everyone, verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, what Paul is saying here is so profound, and I would argue that the overwhelming majority of people in our culture, that the overwhelming majority of people in our world actually desire this. There's something deep in every single one of our souls that when we look out at the world, we say, you know what? There's something about this world that I wish was different. I wish the world that which we lived in was different. Like all of humanity desires a world where everyone is loved, where everyone is accepted, where everyone is celebrated. We want a world that's not filled with hostility, where fighting's not happening, where people aren't killing each other. We want a world where we can actually experience peace. Every single person feels that deeply within their souls. And I would suggest to you that this is actually where the philosophy and the worldview of political correctness, that it's what this is all born out of. Like there's some very well-intentioned people that deep in their heart of hearts, they, they look at the world and they want something different. They really do want, want something better. They want a place where people are loved and where they fit and where they're accepted and where they're celebrated. That's what they want. They just have no idea how to get there. They have no idea what, what it looks like to be there because their worldview simply does not allow it to be possible. The worldview doesn't offer a foundation to make that happen. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? That we have, generation by generation, that we have raised generations of people in Darwinian theory of survival of the fittest, and then we're surprised when people actually live like it that we have spent decades upon decades teaching children that the weak or the strong will ultimately overcome the weak, and in that it is good because of the good things that come from it, and then when our kids grow up to be adults and they start living as if that's true, we go, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what we want. That's not what we desire. That's not what we're looking for. That's not the way that we want the world to be, that there's something deep within all of us that pushes against that. And Paul says, Paul says, look, the problem is, is the prevailing worldview. The prevailing worldview of our time just simply has no foundation to make it possible. And so the only thing that we have left is to manage the external. That we, that we come alongside and, and we try to manage the things that are on the, on the outside to control the external. And this is where the politically correct culture 
comes from. And so we're left to redefine, to slap labels on things. It's why we have some silly laws and, and silly social norms. We're trying to manage people so that they treat one another differently. It's an attempt to manage the externals because we don't know how to change the foundation. We don't know how to repair the relentless self-absorption of the human heart to make this reality. And what's so profound about verses 13 through 16, it says Paul is sitting in the back of the classroom and he raises his hand. And he goes, I got a solution. I got a worldview. I got a core, a belief system, a foundation that can actually make what you desire most in your life possible in this world. To understand that at one point we were all spiritually dead, that we were all children of wrath, that we are all equal in that, equally lost, equally without hope, no exceptions to that. And the only ha hope that anyone in humanity had was divine intervention. And by God's grace and his grace alone, that we were offered salvation as a gift freely. You didn't earn it. Nothing you did to deserve it. You couldn't merit it that we simply received it by faith in that moment when you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're in. You're in Him. And at that point, every single one of us, regardless of our race, regardless of our social class, regardless of our sexuality, regardless of our politics, regardless of your past, regardless of whether you walked in as the most upright, selfish, self-reliant person or the most pagan person in the history of the world, none of that is relevant. It's all Jesus all the time. That when you put your faith in Jesus, you are now equally loved, equally accepted, equally celebrated forever. Paul says this is the theological and philosophical base to make that which we desire most in this world to experience peace, that this is the way to happen. That this is the framework in, we, in which we can push everything that divides us through. That on the basis of Jesus' grace and what he did for us on the cross, that is dying for our sins and bringing us near, we now can come together as one humankind in an environment where we thrive and flourish together. That's the essence of what he's saying in verses 13 through 16, which means what we desire most. Come on. What we desire most is actually possible. Not in some far off worlds. What we desire most as people deep within our souls is actually possible. Verse 19. So then, because this is all true in Jesus, you are no longer strangers and aliens. The word strangers carries with it the meaning of, in our world, of illegal, undocumented, Immigrants. That's what that word means. It's referring to the person who, who comes here, comes here illegally, flies under the radar with all the suffering that goes along with that. In essence, they don't belong here. That's what a stranger is. An alien in our modern culture would be someone who's an immigrant but here legally. But they have this sense, this feeling within them that they don't, that they don't really fit. They would say, like, like it, doesn't, it, doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like home. This isn't my home. Paul says, because of the cross of Jesus, you are no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. You don't have to walk around feeling like you don't fit. In fact, he says, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You got a home. You got a house, verse 20. 
And all of this is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, circle, underline, highlight, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, verse 21, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together, highlight, underline, circle, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, understanding this, understanding this, we have to understand cornerstone. Now, Paul says that Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, when we think of cornerstone, we think of like a plaque that we put on the side of the building with maybe some dates or a name or something like that. In fact, at Fort Lupton, at our campus there, we have a cornerstone. It looks like this. For most of us, this is the way that we think of cornerstones. But in the ancient world, cornerstones were massive. They were as big as a railroad boxcar. That's how big they were. And what they were used is they were used to be the corner of an entire building. And so when it was set, everything else was built off that cornerstone. That cornerstone was central to everything else that was happening. It carried the weight of everything else and held everything together. That's the idea here, that Jesus is the cornerstone, that everything is built onto him. All of the weight is placed upon him. It's Jesus and Jesus alone that makes it possible for this new temple of God, this new holy temple of God, to be the dwelling place of God. Jesus makes it all possible. Now, what's most interesting for us is that when we read about this new holy temple that, that Paul is talking about in verse 22, it's plural. It's not singular. See, when we open up the New Testament, there are a lot of verses that speak to the holy temple of God. And some of them, a very few of them, talk about the temple of God as being an individual. Like, I am the temple of God because the Spirit of God is dwelling within me. Now, there's a reality to that. But for us Western thinkers, I mean, those are the verses that we love. Those are the verses that we gravitate to. There's something in us that loves that individualistic nature, not only as Western, you know, Western thinkers, but also as Coloradoans. Like, we love our independence, right? That we love thinking about, like, you know, it's me, myself, and God, and we're just doing our thing. Like, we just love that. But a majority, most of the verses when we read in the New Testament, and it speaks about the holy temple of God, it's not us as individuals, but us collectively. It's plural. That the New Testament really has no concept of me, myself, and God just doing our own thing. The New Testament teaches is that we together make up the temple of God. That we together are the dwelling place of God. It's why Jesus said, hey, when two or three of you are together, you can count on me being there. You can count on me, you can count on me being there. This is why we gather corporately together to worship. That, that, you know, when we come to this building, we don't come to this building because this is Crossroads Church. This is just a building. We're Crossroads Church. But we gather together in corporate, in corporately to bring worship to God. See, no matter where you've been, no matter what your story is, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter if you, no matter if you came in today as like a play-by-the-rule moralist or you came believing that you are the most pagan person in the history of the world, believing there's no way that you could ever be accepted, no way that you could ever be loved, that you would always be on the outside looking in the scandalous nature of grace, is that regardless of who you are, that regardless of your story, that God offers you his salvation freely as a gift. And like every single one of us, your option is only to receive it by faith. And the moment that you receive faith, regardless of your story, 
Regardless of your past, you are accepted. Regardless of what you've done, you belong. Regardless of the way that you've lived your life, you fit. And at that moment, you're as accepted and loved and celebrated and hope-filled as any person in Jesus can be forever. See, the idea is when we gather corporately as the body of Christ, and let me just be frank for a moment, that you cannot do this online week after week sitting on your couch. That when we gather together corporately, we get a taste of the eternal reality that as we live as new human beings in the environment in which God has set, where we can thrive together, where we can flourish together. That's the picture of the church. And I sit back and I just wonder, like what if we as Crossroads Church actually believe this to our toes and live this out in our lives? So that when we showed up here, that we made a commitment that when we show there's less judging, less criticalness, less you know, rejection, and more encouragement, more reminders of, of who we are, more celebration, more acceptance. When we believe that, I'm telling you that we create an environment in which the world sees as irresistible. That we see and begin to create an environment where each and every one of us can mutually thrive together forever. And when we create that moment, when we create that kind of in, uh, environment, for a moment we get a taste of what our eternal reality in heaven will be like here on this earth. When Jesus prayed, Lord, let your heaven, right, be on this earth. Let it be on this earth as it is in heaven. This is what he's speaking about, that we would actually experience heaven now. And so let me wrap this up for us by saying that if you've spent your life feeling like you're on the outside looking in, like you never really belonged, like you never really fit. There's a God who loves you and cares for you and celebrates you, who has fearfully and wonderfully made you. Don't think that you have to spend another moment of your life living with that kind of despair. If you're there today, we would love to start a conversation with you. You can simply text the name of Jesus to our text number 720-513-1933. And we got people who are ready to talk. People like Pastor James and Pastor Chris, Angie, Tiffany, Kristen. But there are people who have and are ready to have this very conversation with you. For those of you who are believers and you're part of this local body that we call Crossroads, my encouragement, maybe even my challenge to you today is to remember Remember who you were. Remember who you are. And remember who you get to do this with. And allow that to be the driving force of the innermost part of your being as God transforms us together as the body, as the church. And when we do, Paul says that's when we'll experience peace. Would you bow with me? Lord, Lord, may you bless us and keep us. May you lift your countenance, your face upon us. And may you be gracious to us. 
Lord, may we experience your countenance that is your very smile today. And may that lead us to what we all long for, which is peace. And Jesus, I pray today that you would let your kingdom come, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven, because honestly, that is the desire of our hearts. Give us a taste. We long for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.